Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I'm a 30-year Wall Street veteran who has taken on a secret identity and gone underground in order to provide my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen me on TV. You've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unvarnished views on the air, so I've disguised my voice, and they will never know. Uh... This week, we look at the February 5th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. Um, it's uh, after work. I'm kicked back. I'm enjoying an adult beverage or two. You probably should hope for no more than that uh, if you hope to get anything out of the show. And I will pick my favorite three stocks. I, in fact, I already have. They're right here in front of me. Oftentimes, by this point in the show, I'm still trying to find one, but I have all three. And uh, we also, uh, this year, have begun to do a rant at the beginning of the show, just because it keeps me interested. And uh, what I've discovered is as I do a rant each week, I find my rants are often about spending and taxes, and then I repeat. So it's again true this week as well. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to mention a couple of important caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only. And uh, as we like to say, that's not a guarantee. Uh, also, I may have some important conflicts of interest. Uh, I may uh, be shorting stocks I say I like on the show. I may uh, say I don't like stocks I do like, uh, etc. So um, I may uh, have lucrative arrangements with the management teams of the companies I talk about. Who knows? I could, I suppose. And most importantly, I may be completely uninformed, and um, that is oftentimes true. I'm just reading Value Line. Uh, this is the same professional work I do during the week, but right here I just have Value Line and a beverage, so a little, uh, little fewer resources than I usually deal with. Uh, this week, three stock ideas. It was primarily a retail issue in Value Line, so I'm going to talk about Carter's which I'm going to compare and contrast to Liz Claiborne. Uh, Family Dollar, which, um, you know, has a long history of great returns. And Children's Place, which has a short history of medium returns. But before we get to that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try out just a little rant. And let's see how it goes. Um, I do want to point out that... Um, all our caveats and pictures and a description of the show, etc., are at www.thevalueguys.com. And I've also started putting up a blog that has a summary of these comments. So if you don't want to listen to this whole 30-minute show, which, you know, most of you probably don't want to, you just want to get to the ideas, well, I've got this blog now. Saves you time. Valuelineobserver.thevalueguys.com. Uh, okay, this week, I do have a little bit of a rant, and here's my rant. You know, when I was in business school <clears throat> a long time ago in the 70s, uh, you know, we studied past, uh, you know, economic periods, and actually I think that's a great way to try to, you know, make uh, some sense of what's going on. People may have heard me talking about the recession of 1873 uh, last year, the year before, which seems similar to what we were experiencing here in 08, 09. 
Um, but the lesson I want to talk about right now is the lesson of the 1930s. And when you went back and read that stuff, uh, honestly, in my first job, it was at a firm with a huge, huge library. Now, remember, this is before the Internet, and you need a lot of information. In fact, I'll just say one of my big edges as an analyst was knowing which building uh, the 10Ks were in. So just to give you an idea of how primitive it was. And you had to sort of be nice to a lady in there, and then you had to make your own copies for you know whatever it was, a 10 cents a copy. It was insane. Um, uh, but in any case, uh, we had this big library, and I remember going back and picking out all the Moody's and S&P uh, data uh, from the 30s. We had a terrific librarian. I hope she's doing well somewhere. And she had all this data, and I studied it. I put it in, uh, actually, when I could, I, I put it in VisiCalc, for those of you that remember that. Uh, it was on the Apple II and, uh, of course, ported everything into Lotus. But I was a student of all that data. And the thing I remember about it was just thinking to myself, well, gee, how primitive, you know, the policymakers, they didn't understand that if they dramatically cut lending capacity by shutting a bunch of banks, that might hurt the recovery, uh, you know, that would ensue. How how primitive, you know. Uh, or uh, Or they didn't know, you know, they didn't understand that if you – uh, dr dramatically increase the tax rates to make sure that the money that people were wildly speculating with was taken from them if you did that. Um, we now know, I mean, this is in the 70s, that that could potentially be harmful. So, again, I was going through school, 80s, 90s. You had all this comfort that the policymakers understood the dangers of cutting lending capacity or increasing tax rates into a period that was already obviously hindered by dramatic asset value declines, the bursting of a bubble. So, you know, fast forward, here we are. What's my rant about with that as a backdrop? Well, here we are, okay? Admittedly, the show's late. It's Monday. We're coming into a period where uh, the huge fear is over, the thought that no bank would loan another dollar to anyone, uh, or that governments, uh, you know, aside from the United States, would start socializing all their industries, thereby reducing the returns on capital invested in those industries and reducing growth and future wealth and all those horrific uh, scenarios that one can think about. I think, you know, the worst case scenario, and of course, Henry uh, uh, Paulson is out with his book that I haven't read but looking forward to because it's going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of what was going on and the fear of the collapse of a credit uh, that, you know, we saw very uh, up close and real not that long ago. But what, what I'm ranting about now is simply that we're past that and uh, we're looking at potential huge deficits, of course, which in a recession like this you expect some of that. But the problem, of course, is the projection of continued deficits going out years and years and years. And, um, you know, rather than taking a big hack at some of the big expenses in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the things that we really are going to have to get our arms around, you know, we can't touch any of that. So we're dealing with a very small portion of the budget. And uh, what I'm left with is seeing the tax uh, rates, the current tax rates, 
um, being discussed as uh, rising in 2011 by letting the current um, tax cut legislation simply expire. And there's a lot of politicians all caught up in how cute that is, that the language, you know, how they've, they've got that there's this trick because they're not really raising taxes. They're simply uh, letting a, a, an eliminating a decrease, and that's very clever and all that. But I just say that whether it's clever or not, it's going to have a really bad effect on the economy because here's what we have a problem with. The people who hire people, they, and I know it's bad to say this, they have money. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to hire people. You know, I just can't get away from that logic that the people who are bad right now are the people you also want to do some hiring. So, uh, you know, we've got a, uh, we've got a situation where um, you want these people on your side a little bit if you want more uh, hiring. So the people who are going to hire, their asset values right now are down 20 to 40% versus four years ago. Um, And so, you know, they're a little bit under siege. Plus, they're two or three years older. So um, their natural inclination to become more conservative as they age, which, of course, is the smart thing to do, is playing out. At the same time, uh, the total values are down, and we need investment, not saving. So... Uh, their values are down. Now we're also talking about a, a tax hike on capital gains. I mean, if you lose money or break even, no tax. Maybe that's what we should be thinking about that is good. But if you want to lure capital, you've got to offer a return to lure it, lure. And if you do, uh, the tax rate's going to move from 15 to 20%. Well, I don't know if it's lost on people. That represents a... 33% increase in the tax rate from 15 to 20. And it is a, uh, I guess, a better way to look at it. It's a 6% reduction in your retention. So you'll go from 85% retention to 80%, 6% reduction. That's probably a better way to think about it than 33, which sounds alarming. So, okay, 6%. Uh, but then, on top of that, uh, we've got a uh, income tax increase. Okay, so some of these same people, they do have earnings from, uh, you know, businesses that uh, are taxed at regular rates, and the government is increasing the number of jobs that are paying regular rates. I'm thinking of the hedge fund industry, et cetera. But that rate's going to go from 35 to 40 percent as a result of this elimination of the decline, the expiration. And a better way to look at that, just as I did the other case, is that the retention is going to go from 65% to 60%, and that's a 7% reduction. So I've got a 6% reduction coming in my capital gain tax uh, in retention, and I've got a 7% uh, reduction in my income tax. Um, Okay, all right. So I'm already down 20 to 40%. If I get a 6 or 7% reduction in my income streams, then that means with interest rates unchanged or my discount rate unchanged, I've also got a 6 to 7% reduction in the asset value associated with that income stream um, because of the taxes. Okay. Now, you also have to take into account 
because my retention is lower, my capital that's invested is also going to be 7% lower. And then my reten- so my returns aren't going to be higher in this period. They're going to be the same or perhaps lower. So um, not only am I, is my retention going to be lower if I earn the same dollar, but I'm going to actually be re- retaining 7% less on a 7% reduced dollar of earnings because my capital's reduced. And so somewhere in there you start to get into a, you know, 7% times 7% sort of situation, which is 14% reduction in value. That's before I start changing the discount rate. So um, my point is, I guess, and we're looking at inflation because of all the money, et cetera. Uh, Over a 10-year period, a 6% compounded rate of inflation instead of a 10% 10% compounded rate of inflation. Uh, if you discount that back, you know, over a 10-year period, your purchasing power on that dollar is actually half what it would be at the higher rate of inflation, 10 versus 6. So, you know, the, the math's getting fuzzy. I'm in the middle of an adult beverage. This is a rant, so skip through this if it's too much. But the point is simply that um, if you took economics and you studied the 30s, We've already got the asset decline. Don't lay in the tax hike because you're, everyone's excited about how the language thing is so cute that it's not a tax hike. It's an uh, elimination of a decline. The impact on Wall Street is going to be the same. And I might argue that um, you know the market is still 30% off the highs. And, uh, you know, I don't think people are as scared as they were. The whole idea that banks will never loan money again, that's repairing. That's repairing itself. We have a big bank position in the shop. And, um, you know, we're studying that all the time. And so, you know, that that's kind of, it's working its way through, I think. And uh, it's not a bank issue, but, you know, there's a lot of good banks, even bad banks. A portfolio of banks probably makes a good deal of sense right now. But... Um, I guess my point is simply that uh, the market may be reflecting this hit to asset values that's permanent because it's based on higher discount rates as a result of inflation and lower growth rates on top as a result of uh, lower debt capacity, you know, which we learned from the 30s you shouldn't do, um, and, uh, and then higher taxes, which we learned from the 30s you shouldn't do. So... I hope we don't actually do that. That's my rant for the week. Okay, if you've skipped to this point, and maybe for your sake I hope you have, uh, I've got three ideas this week. They're all retailers, and uh, I did go through every ish- every stock this week. I'm going to take a little beverage break right now uh, with myself. Just It's a habit. It's weird, but I do it. Okay. <clears throat> Let's see. I dropped my pen. Okay. First up this week, Carter's, ticker CRI, page 2102, and value line rates this a two, so we're in sync this week a little bit. Um, What am I drawn to? Well, it's a brand, a good brand. It's known for high uh, quality, and I think that in retailing, since the goods themselves are often commodities um, in some sense, having a brand that stands for something, you know, that's... Um, that's valuable, and it's valuable in that you get right of first refusal on people buying. You probably get your pick of the best locations in the mall. You might get um, some uh, improved real estate costs because the landlord wants you there, et cetera. So um, 
those are all sort of wind at your back sorts of things. Uh, Carter has a history of, you know, pretty decent, I say, returns on capital, not great. So upper, well, lower teens on margin, and that's been slowly improving. I guess that's part of the story here. And, uh, you know, slowly improving returns on capital. So when I see those two things happening, uh, and the stock at this point is trading at 12 times earnings, which is a 28% discount to the market P.E., um, you know, those kinds of things are going to get me spiraling in a little further. I've got good margins, improving margins, which means the incremental return on incremental sales is very good, or there's some process that's getting better, or they're getting economies of scale, something's going on. And then uh, the returns on capital are moving up in conjunction. So um, it probably means it's a, it's a cost thing versus a, an asset turnover thing. Otherwise, um, the return on capital would be rising at a faster rate than the improvement in margin, and that's not the case here. They lever up a little bit. Um, you know what? I've circled this, but I've now crossed out uh, the number. I think this might say that they have 49% debt to capital, which normally sounds pretty high. I mean, it does sound high. But their margin structure, combined with their low interest rate, for example, their long-term interest says $11 million on $331 million in debt. So that's 3% on something. That's a great rate. And so, you know, so in, in, in some odd sense, it's not really that much debt to the extent that if you took the present value of it, the stream you're paying, and you discounted it at the company's cost of capital, uh, that's actually, you know, a good deal. It's really um, a low rate on that level. So uh, I like that. And then explains why their coverage is 30 times because the interest rate there is pretty low. Um, they have some cash, $214 million, So when I net that out, um, their coverage really moves, you know, toward 50, 60. I mean, I don't know how this, what the rate on the cash is, et cetera, but it moves clearly above 50. And so that's something I really don't have to worry about at all. The uh, operating earnings or the cash uh, EBITDA earnings before um, depreciation interest and taxes is, uh, according to Value Line, about 15% of a billion six. So, you know, let's do the math. 1.6 plus 8, 2.4. Um, so that's $240 million. Market cap, that's equity value times uh, total shares. So 26 bucks times uh, 57 million shares. That gives me a billion five or so. I'm going to add the debt, $300 million, uh, a billion eight. I'm going to subtract the cash, 200. That's a billion six. And I'm going to divide that by the EBITDA, which I just said was about $240 million. So um, that's somewhere around, uh, what, seven times? Something like that. So seven times, that's my cash flow on my investment. So one over seven, 14%, that's going to be my cash return if I bought all the stock, all the debt, and I owned all that cash flow. Uh, that would be a 14% return. Now, compared to what you get at the bank, that's pretty good. And if you had some confidence that that cash flow stream was sustainable and you were a wealthy guy, you know, why wouldn't you do that? 
you know, it's a pretty good deal. And that thought is what keeps, you know, the stock market honest. You got people thinking, well, since a guy might do that, I don't want to miss out. And you have arbitrage of that nature, sort of uh, allowing the stock price to have a value. Um, I think that's a pretty good deal because on top of the 14% cash on cash, I'm going to have, uh, according to value line, 14% earnings growth. I don't need that much to make this a buy because 14%, even if I just get 6% growth um, in that valuation year over, you know, year by year, or 6% earnings growth at the same multiple means each year that goes by, my company's worth 6% more. So I'm getting a yield of 14%, and I now have an asset worth 6% more, which admittedly is volatile, but over time, you know, if you whatever that thing's going to compound at, you can add it into your cash yield for your total return. So I'm north of 20 on Carter's. Um, let me uh, talk about what's going on at Carter's right now. Well, first of all, because I've told you nothing, right? They have 370 wholesale stores, 250 retail. They own the Oshkosh Bagash name and have 150 outlets. Uh, Let's see. Retail is 45% of sales, so that's their own stores. And then wholesale uh, would be 38%. That's department stores. Mass is going to be Target and Kmart and Walmart and things like that. Um, other owners, Fries, which is a respectable money manager, 5%. Officers own 6%. Officers and directors, I'd like to see that. So that's all good. That all checks out here. Um, up at the top left of Value Line, there's an insider buying box. And honest to God, I mean, it's just zeros all across. Most companies, you don't see a lot of insider buyer buyers. And, you know, it'd be nice if you did. It would add to the story a little bit, but they don't have that going on here. Um, the company, um, you know, when you look back over time, it historically traded at higher uh, relative valuations, which is, again, one of the attractive things here is you got an above-average company. Just to keep it simple, an above-average company on margins and returns on capital, growth prospects. Um, it's a little bit more of a defendable niche, in my opinion, than mass women's apparel or men's apparel because it's for kids and moms. So you're you're marketing to moms and parents and grandparents who aren't really seeking fashion as much as just well-made good service. So those are things you can build over time versus some kind of fashion brand uh, where, you know, you're in this year, out the next year. I think this is more of a quality uh, service type brand, and that's one of the things I like here. The reason the stock is cheap, uh, cheaper than usual, is the company's had some issues. They've had some of their past accounting practices were drawn into question. That's always a problem. They've had to restate some of their past earnings. In fact, I guess whoever came after them here, they had to restate earnings by a retained earnings by seven point five million dollars. Well, geez, that's on uh, the total is five hundred million, so they were one and a half percent off on their retained earnings. How alarming that is! The chart, the changes added thirteen cents to first half '09 earnings, and let's see. Uh, 15 cents. So that's a five, uh, 8%. It added 8%. So now we're just, we've got the precision we need to move ahead. 
with those earnings numbers. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, firms that can't buy into a situation like this because it's under a cloud, even though, um, you know, the, the news up front is typically worse than the outcome. And, um, and I'm sure that's going to be the case here as well. They've also had some management changes. President Joseph Pacifico, uh, let's see, has been replaced. I don't know why. Uh, new executive vice president. So, um, you know, a lot of times you'll see a company uh, come under a little valuation pressure when you have a management change. And I don't know the story here whatsoever, so you'd need to learn a little about that. But oftentimes, the people coming in are better than the people going out, or the people wouldn't be going out. It's that simple. So the fact that they're going out, I don't know who they are. So the you know you might have a little discount here because we don't know who they are. But honestly, is the board going to bring in people worse than the last people? I just ask you. So Carter's, um, page 2102. You know, I was going to do a compare and contrast with Liz Claiborne, um, but it's almost silly to do so. I guess, there's, you know, I, I pulled this one out. Um, the valuation is a little cheaper. So instead of a seven times EBITDA, you're six times. So you're thinking, oh, that's a little cheaper. But this has one times coverage, 2% returns on capital. They don't make money. Um, one one thing I noticed on this one that I thought was interesting was that um, Liz Claiborne has a market value, enterprise value, because you do want to count the debt in here, of a billion two, and they have uh, fifteen thousand employees, and Carter's has an enterprise value of around a billion five, a little higher. They have six thousand five hundred employees, even on sales. Um, Carter's a billion seven. Again, uh, they've got 6,500 employees. Liz Claiborne, three billion, but they've got 20, no, 15,000 employees, almost three times as many. So I just, uh, you know, that's not a really great compare and contrast. But if the valuation starts to get you interested in some of these things, you got to look at some of the returns. Uh, you know, sales per employee certainly. Uh, you know, debt, coverage, things like that. Uh, next up, Family Dollar, page 2137. Um, I'm sure I've talked about this before, you know, because it's just such a great company for so many years. And um, the returns, you know, you go back over time, and they're just always mid to upper teens. They drip into the 20% once in a while. They don't have too much leverage, 15% debt to capital. And, um, you know, this is one of those stores between uh, themselves and Dollar General, which I think did get bought out a few years ago at a valuation that would allow you to still think Family Dollar is at a meaningful discount. Um, you know, I don't remember what that valuation was. Uh, let's see here. The peak on the stock in the last five years was sort of right where we're at now, so... Um, you know, perhaps this has moved towards that multiple. But the point is this category, you know, has been gaining share from department stores for forever. And um, they, you know, have been gaining share, I think, from almost every category except the Walmart category. 
and they still have locations they can go into. Some of their growth is slow simply because, you know, once they get, you know, these guys have about uh, 7,000 stores, and I think Dollar General probably has a similar number or more. And so, you know, the the area gets pretty saturated. Um, but they are managing to put up some decent growth. Um, according to Value Line, they're going to grow in the upper, you know, single digits, which is pretty good. They have margins that, um, you know, sit in the upper single digits, which you know, these guys operate under a Walmart pricing. So uh, it's pretty impressive. You know, they don't have the cost structure of Walmart, but generally they're in, you know, smaller footprints where Walmart might have 100,000 or 80,000 square foot you know, store. These guys, I think, are more in the eight to ten, so they can sneak these things places that they're, you know, they can't get a Walmart. Um, they keep their technology and their expenses very low. I know a few years ago um, they were laying in some some things like coolers or um, uh, radio frequency technology for inventory. You know, some of these productivity-enhancing tools or uh, methods to get people back into your store, we're all, we're all new for these for some of these stores. So there's still innovation that if you, you know, come into a Target, you can learn about and go back. And these stores have been very cautious over the years um, in terms of investment relative to their uh, business size, and, and they haven't, you know, over-invested in technology. It's still largely, you know, people-intensive business in rural and uh, uh, low-traffic locations. And, and they manage to, you know, sell a, a, a good mix of household items and foodstuffs. And it, it can really be the one store you go to. And in these periods of lower um, uh, growth in jobs, lower income, etc., cetera, uh, they tend to pick up share. So, um, I may have just been going on a bit about this just to give you a backdrop of what it is about these stores that make them competitive over the last 20 years. And uh, the stock has been performing, like yeah, I'm sure like, like many uh, lower price point retailers, they've been picking up share. You could have bought the stock for 14 last year. It's up here at 31. But what I like about it is it's, it's still 13 times earnings. It's uh, 20% discount to the market PE. It's cheaper than it... Um, oftentimes sells, uh, you know, for 20 years up until four years ago, it always traded at a premium. It's probably worth less than that because the longer term growth rate now is just going to be impaired because of the number of <clears throat> locations, uh, the saturation between, you know, themselves, Walmart, uh, Dollar General, et cetera. Um, Fred's, for that matter, just starts to run into your longer-term growth rate, the Home Depot problem, as I like to think about it. So it's probably fair that that growth rate's going to be off. But again, I go and look at a cash flow yield basis. I've got enterprise value. That's going to be the shares times the stock price of $4.2 billion plus the debt of $250 million. I mean, they have no debt to speak of, and their cash exceeds the debt. They've got nearly $400 million in cash. So I've got a $4.1 million EBITDA. I'm sorry, enterprise value. And according to Value Line, I'm doing nearly uh, eight, an 8% margin on $7.5 billion in sales, which looks like about $600 million for uh, uh, an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of around 7. So 1 over 7, that's a 14% cash-on-cash return. And I'm going to get, 
you know, I'm value line says 10% growth. I don't need that. So, you know, still easy to get to 20% return, total return with family dollar. Uh, according to some of the text here, um, let's see, what do we have here? Uh, they're off to a good start. Their margins are rising. Uh, they've reduced their freight expenses. SGNA, you know, costs are rising slightly. Uh, I'll just say, when I look back here over time, uh, the operating margin is been a right around 8% for about six years, coming down from about 10% for the prior six years. It doesn't seem as if it's taking another leg down. Uh, their returns on capital are running in the 15 16% range. That's just terrific here. And I think on the at these cash-on-cash cash returns um, and with, um, you know, well-capitalized firms uh, have you know, pretty decent access to capital and rates are low uh, for uh, for good credits. And so, you know, could these guys get snapped up? Um, you know, crazier things have happened. Foreign companies um, with the dollar where it is, et cetera, uh, may just be on the lookout to come in um, and take a footprint. And that's not my primary reason for owning it. But um, who knows? It smells ripe for that. Okay, last up. Uh, and it seems like the show might be just dragging on a little bit. I am getting to it late. I'm pretty sleepy. We've had a lot going on in the shop. Um, you probably don't, you know, care, but if you're listening this long, our lease is up, so we're looking for a new place. We may stay in the building. We may move, you know, but we got to get, get on the, on the move. And I've been also, I've been trying to write our quarterly letter, which, you wouldn't think it would be that big of a deal, but I really am a procrastinator, and so uh, I was working on it today, and it, it, I think it turned out okay, but um, I was worrying about it all weekend, so that's why I didn't get to the show. I was sort of trying to work on that, and we're looking at real estate, et cetera, so uh, anyway, I apologize. The show's up a little late uh, this week. Um, also, I know I mentioned that I might have a value, a new uh, person who just wanted to drop on the show, and that didn't work out for this week. There was a conflict. But I am lining up a handful of uh, value guys um, to uh, to drop in, pay us a visit over the next couple of weeks, so listen in for that. Okay, last up, Children's Place, ticker PLCE, page 2179. Uh, my theme on this is that it appears that there's an oligopoly, um, again, like I was saying in Carter's, there's an oligopoly that's not built around fashion but um, but quality and service in this niche. And, you know, you, you have short replacement cycles. So if you can get someone as a customer on the basis of confidence in the quality and the service, um, you know, the, the clothes, you, you know, before they wear out, the... The kids are growing, so that can be a pretty good business. These guys are putting up returns right now in the low teens. Um, they've been spotty over time. They have a couple years where they get down into, they don't lose money, but they get down into low single digits, and then they're back into the mid-teens. So 
a few spotty episodes. I know they were involved with the Disney stores at one point, and they uh, they operated them. I think that's in the past for them. So um, it really, uh, you know, is a little bit different company. Um, I think about a, a maybe a quarter to a third of the business was that Disney business, and it's gone now. So they're sort of rebuilding around uh, their primary brand, which is, of course, the Children's Place retail stores. They've got, uh, let's see, how many stores here? 900 stores in the U.S. and Canada. And, uh, you know, I'll just say I, I think they could have a lot more stores, you know, so they're not saturated with that. Um, officers and directors own 19% of the stock. I like that. And the thing that I'm attracted to, again, just like Carter's, it's 12 times earnings. It's uh, t- uh, 28% discount from the average PE in the marketplace. The enterprise value to EBITDA on this one is, is uh, you know, almost un- unusual. So i got to go check it, or you should check. We should all check it. But here's what I'm looking at. According to Value Line, the market cap is $875 million. So I'm just going to check that, $34 times 27 million shares. So uh, that looks like about, I don't have a calculator, as you know, but, you know, let's see, 30 million times 30 would be 900. So, you know, it's ballpark on that. Okay. Um, They have no debt. So I like that. And they've got 100 million in cash. So I'll subtract that. I'm down at, let's just call it 775 million in enterprise value that represents the value that it would take the money for us to go down there buy all the stock and uh, buy all the debt of which there's none and and you know sort of exit out of the cash and our net investment would be 775 million now if we did that what would we get well according to value line they're putting up a billion six in revenue for '09. They're doing a forty percent gross margin, which uh, you know isn't super great. I guess it's okay, and uh, their operating margin is twelve percent. So that you know that is pretty good. I've seen worse SG&A ratios than that. The difference between the gross margin and the operating margin has got to be the SG&A, right? So. It's 28%, and that's pretty good. I don't know why that is, but, um, you know, why it's not higher. I guess you might have uh, just uh, maybe less commission. Maybe you don't have commission. Maybe there's fewer fixtures. Maybe the headquarters is leaner. You know, I, I, I don't know. I can't tell you on that one. You have to check into that. But the point is 12% operating margin on a billion six in sales uh, that's going to be 160 million, plus what? Uh, 30 million. No, let's see. Yeah, 30. So that gets me up. Just call it 200 and help me out with the math. So I'm at 775 in enterprise value, 200 million in EBITDA. That's four times. That's one over four. 25% cash on cash return. What's up with that? So clearly, something's up, and you can tell because four times is freaking cheap. So, um, you know, you got it. And then on top of that, according to Value Line, the last five years of growth 
have been, you know, great, 14%, 15%, 20%. They have this little table of annual growth rates. But then moving forward, it's just all NMF, not meaningful. Well, come on. Why can't we project? So has something happened here that just everything's gone to hell and no one wants to buy the stock? I mean, let's see. Uh, according to Value Line, uh, the company's continuing to perform well amid a challenging retail environment. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Earnings were just reported up 64%. That doesn't sound bad. SGNA is improving. IMU is up, which stands for initial markup. You know, one thing I think is funny, this is just a teeny little rant, is when analysts say things like IMU. I mean, come on. Initial markup, it's... It's a short word, you know. It's so with the IMU. I mean, come on. Okay. Um, So everything seems to be going well. Ah, I see. They've recently hired a CEO following a long search and two years with interim leadership. So, I mean, the stock's up a bit here but over the recent term, but it's down over the last three years during the search time. And maybe there's just uncertainty surrounding the qualities of this new leader. I, how, do, how do I know? I don't. I don't know. But four times EBITDA. Um, let's see. Rapidly expanding e-commerce business should make increasing contributions. That doesn't sound bad. Online sales were up 44%. They're now 7% of total sales, which is actually pretty low for a retailer so either they're new to it or you know maybe it's hard to buy online stuff for kids because it's you need their size you know you need to have them try it on i don't, I don't know that seems low though um uh, what else high volatility month to month but i mean according to the you know the verbiage here and the numbers things are going well why it's four times ebitda i don't know but it's certainly worth a look. They've got some kind of niche, some kind of oligopoly pricing. And uh, I think that may be a pretty decent one. Children's Place, PLCE. And with that, um, let's see. I guess I'm going to need to pick a favorite this week. And um, wow, you know, I think, you know, Carter's and Children's Place really are mirrors of each other when I look at all the numbers. So, hmm. So, I'm going to go with Children's Place, P-L-C-E, and why? Because I think they're the seller, Carter's is the buyer. That's why. Anyway, that's this week's show, everybody. Thanks for listening in. This has been the February 5th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. See all of our information, pictures, caveats, etc., bios at www.thevalueguys.com. And if you want to see a summary of this show or past shows, I've got a little blog at valuelineobserver.thevalueguys.com. See you next week, everybody.